The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. Tonight's topics are going to be somewhat professional, somewhat not professional. We're going to talk about, number one, Judge Stewart's ruling in the Latowski case. It's an interesting one. Number two, the topic of hoarding. How Matt McMath and I got into it. And number three, a law school party from 2005. Sometimes things are not what you think. I'm Bill Amadeo from McMaster Amadeo and Grable and Associates. Let's kick it off. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is the jail visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right. So the Latonsky trial, making national news in Shiawassee. I know I'm going to get some from the defense bar on this, but I'm just going to keep it real. People say I have a bias towards Shiawassee. Let's make this a little louder. There we go. Okay, I am a defense lawyer through and through. With that being stated, let me be clear. As a defense lawyer, I feel the legislation on other acts evidence is way too loose. I don't feel it's fair that other acts evidence comes in to try to take someone's freedom away. I don't have a problem with that. With that being said, the question that was posed to me was what did I think of Judge Stewart's rulings? Let's break that down. As a circuit court judge, a trial judge, your job is to interpret the law properly. That's what your job is. Whether you are prosecution or defense, objectively we want a judge who has a brilliant knowledge of the Michigan Rules of Evidence. And Judge Stewart has more knowledge of the Michigan Rules of Evidence than anybody ever meant. With that being said, I felt he ruled properly here. They're going to allow the testimony of two men that escaped from Latonsky to come in. And that's what other acts evidence is all about. I know some defense lawyers will not be happy with my comments on that, but let me just be real. The judge's job is to have a crystal unbiased interpretation of the law. And that's what you get with Judge Matthew Stewart. There's many times Judge Stewart has ruled against me on cases when I think I have great arguments. And I will say that he's not swayed by emotion he looks at the law clearly, and he's going to be objective. And that's what you want in a circuit court judge. One of the problems defense lawyers have in Shiawassee, in my opinion, is in addition to Judge Stewart being so objective, Scott Corner has an amazing knowledge of the rules of evidence. And I will tell you, in law school, there's so many things in law school that are not relevant to the real world. Let's just be real. However, your evidence class is critical. It's the one law school class that actually has real-world application. One of the problems going against Trump, Scott Corner at trial is his knowledge of the rules of evidence is pretty solid. I don't like the legislation on other acts of evidence. I just don't like it. However, Corner understood how to overcome it as a defense lawyer He certainly knows how to apply it as the prosecutor. So when you have a prosecutor with superior knowledge than most defense lawyers and a judge who understands the rules of evidence so well, it does become an uphill battle at times. Um, Any success I may have had in Shiawassee, it was blood, sweat, and tears. I'll tell you, I work in 17 counties, and I think every prosecutor's office has their stars. You know, there's great prosecutors in every office I've ever been at. But I do feel top to bottom, Shiawassee has the strongest prosecuting office. They just have their shit together. That's the reality here. This case is interesting. You know, whenever there's a media case, there's media flair. God knows I have enough media cases going on right now in different counties, which we're not going to talk about those cases. Despite many people that want to, I'm in some wars right now, and... I feel my clients have more than a fighting chance in those wars, in part because of some of the things Judge Stewart taught me as a defense lawyer. 
and some of the things I watched Scott Corner do both as a prosecutor and a defense counsel. To me, when you practice hard in Shiawassee and you take that knowledge to other counties, it's almost like bullying people. You have to do it two times as good in Chi-Town. That's the reality. So I agree with Judge Stewart's rulings completely, and I think Scott Corner is doing a hell of a job on this case. My issue would be from a defense perspective with the legislator, not with the judiciary. Remember, guys, let's go back to history class in eighth grade. What does judiciary do? They interpret the laws. The legislator makes the laws. I feel other acts evidence as a general rule can be very problematic and unfair. But I also feel it's our judge's obligation to interpret that law fairly, and Judge Stewart always does that. And Scott's corner, I don't even include myself in this, he just knows the rules of evidence better than anybody he's going to go against. I think defense counsel in this case is excellent. I know them a little bit. Don't know if they're fans of mine or not. I know they're going to put up a great defense. I just think corner is on top of his game. And it's going to be a tough hill to overcome based on that. And Judge Stewart just going to rule fairly. Um, if we have a problem with the law, we need to address it with the legislator. Let's have a problem with the judge. The judge is going to rule appropriately. And that's a problem sometimes from a defense perspective. Just because the law is not always on our side. As a defense lawyer, I feel our job is more difficult than a prosecutor. And here's why. In essence, prosecutors pick their cases. We get retained on cases, but do we necessarily pick them? No. The prosecutor has this fact pattern, this molding before the case is charged. It's our job to put the offense in the defense. So we have to have those sleepless nights. We need to give up nights, holidays, and weekends. We're fighting for our client's freedom. That's sacred to me. More sacred to me than money. I mean, yeah, we're making great money, and I'm where I'm at in my career. Sometimes it's like, wow, can't believe we're here. But I'll say the one thing I'm really proud of, despite whatever success Google says I have, I haven't lost that fight. To me, the client is more important than the bank account. Remember this in your field, young people out there, young lawyers. If you work your ass off, money's going to come. I promise you that. Money will come. May not come overnight, but it will come. You can make a ton of money in this profession. What you can't do is teach passion. You can't teach heart. And what separates the us from the them is the ones that are willing to put the time in. As a defense lawyer, we have people's freedom in our hands. We have to overcome the legislation to do that. We can't be mad at jurists for ruling according to what the law is. Um, Kathy Bauman, I feel it used to be innocent until prosecution proves guilt, but now it's guilt till defense proves innocence. So that's not right, by the way. It is. I agree, Kathy. Um, I do feel you're guilty before being proven innocent. And that's horrible. But that's the battle we're in. That's the battle a defense lawyer has to take. And some cases, I want to quote Scott Grable here, some cases are about guilt and innocence, and some cases are about risk assessment. You know, sometimes the right thing to do is push this thing to trial and fight like hell. Sometimes the right thing to do is cut a deal to make sure the defendant gets home with their family and does no time at all. It's not a one-size-fits-all proposition, but I do think as defense lawyers, our job is more difficult than the prosecutor. And I have immense respect for the prosecutor, because as the prosecutor, their job is to protect the community. Our job is to protect our clients, and we get, lose sight that sometimes our client is a member of that community. But I think our job is tough. you know. And I think if you don't want to put the client's needs before your own, you really should find a new craft. And I stand by that. Um, the end of the day, we're all supposed to be seeking justice. Are my happy with the laws where they're at right now? Absolutely not. But you have to appreciate a judge like Matthew Stewart who's going to call it down the middle. And you have to respect a prosecutor like Scott Corner who's going to have this amazing amount of knowledge.
And I will tell you, and Josh Champ, I'm going to give a shout out to you right now. You really have to appreciate a journalist who's going to be objective when they write as opposed to trying to convict people before they ever step in the court. More on that in the near future, but I'll move on right now. Josh, thank you. Because I will tell you, not every journalist is going to call it down the middle. Not every prosecuting office is going to stick to the facts. Not every defendant is going to get a fair bite of the apple. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate Shiawassee so god much. You are going to get a fair trial. You're not going to have the media convict somebody before they walk into court. You're going to have the opportunity to fight. I wish some other counties I work in would follow that advice. But you know what? One step at a time. And I'll shut up right now because I know people are watching. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Let's move on to the hoarding issue. We looked around the office, right? And... There are so many boxes filled up, and Matt's getting pissed off at me. People, some of you know Matt McManus, some of you don't. In my opinion, Matt's really the brains of the operation. I'm the guy that screams on YouTube and gets results. But uh, Matt comes up with some of these brilliant ideas I have come from Matt McManus or Jennifer Kelly. A lot of brains in this operation. I'm probably the least intellectual one of the group. But uh, the work ethic overcomes that. But there's this backbone at the firm. And Matt's been pissed off lately. He's like, hey, we got to clean stuff up. I never realized I was a hoarder. So we brought some people in to help us clean up. There are boxes stacked to the ceiling. And we realized that we've probably done 10 years of work in the last two years. It's insane how many cases we've closed and how many cases we have opened. And uh, I mean, it's impressive in some ways, but in also other ways, like, wow, how did that even happen? One of the things that was really pissing Matt off was my need to hang on to everything. And here's an example. This is a yellow notepad. I wrote in this yellow notepad, CSC, Wayne County. I remember when I wrote it down. Matt's going through and throwing it out. He goes, do you really need this? I'm like, well, yes, that's CSC. He goes, you know what? Tell me what that CSC means to you advocating for your clients. One of the things I do, and it's a horrible habit, is I will take a yellow pad and take two pages, put it to the side. Because I get like these thoughts that just come out and I start writing things down. Then I'll type them up. But for some reason, I can't throw the stuff out. So Matt takes the yellow pads, pulls it to the side. I'm like, wow, we have more room to breathe right now. Our process is very different here. Let me be very clear on that. We are not your grandfather's law firm. Um, we think outside the box. And lately... Some of the evidence we've been watching is horrifying. Like, and I'm talking about watching this evidence. I mean, like, 2 o'clock in the morning horrifying stuff, you know? Sometimes we'll be texting each other late at night about a case. Different things we found on Westlaw. Different aspects of things. And we have some cases right now where there is no precedent. There is nothing to turn to. These are cases... A first impression that's really where we're at with things so when you're looking for cases of first impression it's not easy right you're trying to dig kernels of the truth kernels of what's going on and when I say kernels of the truth there may be a case as a little bit on point and a case as another piece on point but to put this casserole together it's not a simple process one of the reasons we get the results is because we work our ass off. I'm proud of that. 
Um, the one thing to try to make my firm's life easier I'm going to try to do is start throwing stuff out more. So, you know, obviously, if you have notes in a notebook and you committed them to your computer, you don't need to keep those notes. I'm kind of a hoarder in that regard. Okay. We're going to kick it back to 2005. 2005. Let me start with this. I was never one much for uh, parties. Parties were not really me in law school. And every once in a while, we would go to a party. And, you know, it, after the finals were over. And when I say we would go to a party after finals were over, you know, basically, it'd be somebody pushing me to go. Come on, B, let's go to this party. Village Green was always an interesting place. Uh, Village Green... I know my phone's blowing up right now. Guys, I will text and call everybody back when I'm done. Went to this party in 2005. It was like my third term of law school. Second or third term. Let me break this down. There was these organizations at Cooley... They were very religious organizations. And it was interesting because these did not seem like the type of people you'd really have a good time with. Now, I don't use drugs. I don't drink. I never even smoke pot or cigarettes. I'm like straight edge all day long, right? Okay. So I go to this party at Village Green. There's a girl I'm kind of seeing at the time. Let me break this down about her. It was a very weird situation. She wasn't there our first term of law school. But she came our second term, and then she left. I don't know what the whole story was. This girl was like Miss Young Republican, right? Like when she dressed couldn't even see her neck like it was always fully clothed glasses on you know glass always been a weakness of mine there was a girl with glasses that was a problem something about the glasses it would like make a six and eight i don't know just always infatuated when with glasses it was always an achilles heel and this girl had glasses she told me that she had a boyfriend let's just call it colorado it's not where they were from but we'll call colorado just so nobody could ever put two and two together she goes, listen, I kind of have a boyfriend in Colorado. Don't know what's going to happen here. But um, we have an understanding. While I'm in law school and he's in law school in a different state, we could see other people. Okay. So I need you to understand this is nothing serious. This is more of a thing of convenience. Because I'm probably going to marry him. But you're never going to meet him. Um, I'll probably be long gone back with him in Colorado. Understood. It is what it is, right? It's one of those things. So I thought. She was also very religious. When I say very religious, like nauseating religious, like you'd be in study group and she'd be throwing out Bible verses. It was extremely... It was over the top. So she wants me to go to this party. And I said, sure, I'll go to the party. I'm going to be in town two more days before I go back to Jersey. But here we hang out. I'm leaving the Cooley Library. I just did my last finals. I print out my syllabus for next term. And there's a guy waiting by the bus stop I went to school with. And he was drunk out of his mind. He was top of our class. I mean, this guy was brilliant. And he lived in my apartment complex. He was going to the party that night. And... I saw him at the bus stop. I like, hey, do you need a ride? He's like, yeah. Great. Okay. Hop in, man. Now, me and this guy could not be more different. All right? Big sports fan. He just likes to read literature. I mean, this guy was a true academic in every sense of the word. He's drunk already. He was at the bar. He's drunk. And he's in the car. It's always amazing what people say to you when they're intoxicated. So he says to me, you depress me so much. 
And I'm like, what's going on? Why are you depressed? What do I do to depress you? Now understand, at this point in my career, I'm fighting to stay in law school. He's top of his class. I said, you are getting all A's. In your world right now, I'm a nobody. He goes, yes, but you're going to be more successful than me. And that really makes me sad. So what do you mean by that? Because you're always going to outwork me. So well, if you're worried about me outworking you, why don't you just work harder? He goes, well, I don't want to. Okay. So he's going on this whole litany about how hard of a worker I am, and it always frustrates him, and he just knows I'm destined for big things, and he's not. Because I'll be a little school star, you'll be a real world star. Okay. I drop him off, because I'll see you at the party soon. I go to the house, feed my cats, um, go to the party. Now, this was supposed to be like a laid-back party, right? Like, you weren't supposed to be suited up or anything like that. Yeah, you walk in with your hoodie, whatever. Uh, this is before the classes. I probably had a backwards baseball cap on because I was kind of immature. Not that that really changed much. I go, I go into the apartment. And I'm going to meet the girl. Um, I walk into the room. Now remember, these people are highly religious. So this guy, I walk in the door, and he splashes water on me. Like, dude, what's your fucking deal? Like, do you believe in Jesus? I'm like, uh-huh. So he was throwing holy water on me. I'm like, oh man, I gotta get the hell out of here. This is going to be a weird party. So he splashes the holy water on me, and he hands me a picture of St. Michael. And I'm looking at the picture. And I'm like, okay. I want you to take this and remember this night. I'm going to remember this night. I'm going to remember this night for a number of reasons. But okay, thanks for that. So, growing up Catholic, here's the problem with religious pictures. You have to burn them. You can't just throw them in the trash. I don't want to upset Aunt Mary and Mom. They're still alive at this point. And I'm like, okay. So, I'm walking around with the St. Michael's picture. This guy splashed me with water. I see this very conservative girl I'm friends with who never so much as said two words. So, I see this conservative girl and she runs around with, ah, finals are over! And she runs to the bedroom. That was weird. Okay. So, this other guy comes up and he's like, Why do you have your own bottle of water? I always bring water with me. It's like, no, take our water. Don't drink your own water. And I'm like, dude, what is your deal? So he starts grabbing the water from me. Like, yeah, get the hell away from me. Don't, why do you care to hide my water? So, I'm waiting to go to the bathroom. There's like this line, right? I see these people, very conservative people, running in and out of this bedroom. The door's cracked. I walk over to the door. I see them. They're literally doing lines on a bed at Village Green. Like, somebody bought a bunch of Coke. And these people, who are always preaching against drugs and always God this and God that, praise Jesus. So I'm like, okay. Now I'm not comfortable. I want to get the hell out of there right now. Here comes Colorado girl. She comes out. She looked very pretty that night. She had like this white scarf on, right? And she's got her glasses on. And she's got like this wine in her hand. It's like this big, big thing of wine. And she's smoking a cigarette and she's drinking the wine. And she goes, Bill, I'm very glad to see you tonight. Hey, yeah, you invited me. What's going on? It's very good to see you. Good to see you, too. Behind her comes this guy with a tuxedo on. Now, this is weird. Dude comes in with a tuxedo. He puts his hand out lightly to shake it. He goes, so you're Bill. I am. Who are you? He tells me it's her boyfriend from Colorado. Now, she told me specifically I was ever going to meet this guy and there was this understanding. So I'm like, oh, this isn't good. 
And he says to me, you're the guy who's been dating my girlfriend in Lansing. He goes, well, I want to thank you for that. She was extremely bored before you came around. So she's drinking her wine. Yes, yes, I was extremely bored. Now, I have like a short shirt on. <laughs> he um, grabs my left bicep. And he says, for a very short man, you have nice biceps. In his tuxedo. Thank you. Please get off my arm. She's smoking, right? And she goes, his name was Robert. I told you, Robert, Bill's best feature are his eyes, not his biceps. They asked me to go in the bedroom with them. Now, there's already no gay in the bedroom. I don't know what they got in mind. I'm a little freaked out right now because, number one, she told me this was cool. Number two, I'm never going to meet this guy. Number three, this guy's coming out of the tuxedo, grabbing my arm, telling me I got nice biceps for a short guy. I don't know. The conservative girls are in the room doing coke. This other guy is giving pictures of St. Michael splashing holy water on me. This was getting out of control, right? So, um, run would make sense, but it was kind of like watching a car crash. You're just, okay, know what to do. Do I just leave? I'm not going to hang out with them or do anything they may want to do. But I'm also kind of like, all right, what is this exactly? So... I want to leave, but I want to exit gracefully. Part of me is like, I gotta get the f out of here, right? Okay. I was always taught when you want to leave a party, don't say goodbye, just get out. I should listen to my. <sighs> so. I started walking out. And remember the guy that wanted my water? I'm walking out, my water's in my left hand. He starts grabbing my water, so I like. Shrug back, like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, you have to get violent with me. I'm like, I just want to go. Why is this guy trying to grab my water? I walk to... I'll back to my apartment, which is not that far away. And, um, Colorado girl comes by, like, 20 minutes later after I got to my apartment. Now, this was concerning because she didn't have a key to get to the front door because Village Gaming was kind of a gated community, if you would, and she just kind of popped through. I don't know how she got in, but she did. So she's banging on my door. Boom, boom, boom. And I opened the door. I was like, hey, what's up? I want to come in. I'm like, um, your boyfriend's at the party. She's like, oh, well, he's a long way away. It was like a five-minute walk. I mean, it couldn't really... It's not that far away. And she's trying to explain things to me. Like, you know, understand. Um, I want to surprise you that he was coming in. Now, part of me is like... Okay, you told me he was cool with things. You told me I never meet this guy. And why is he wearing a tuxedo? And what's up with that guy splashing holy water? And what's up with the little dude that was like trying to steal my water? She tells me there's all very reasonable explanations for all these things. I would just come back to the party. Um, I gave her a hug, kissed her on the cheek. Said, listen, it was really nice knowing you. Um, I'll see you next term. But, uh, I'm not going back to the party. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. good friend of mine, Rick Goldie, once said to me, your lives need to be like therapy for you. So tonight, we're going to put that to the test. And... <laughs> I had some really unique questions that came in. We're going to talk about lunch tables and the cliques of school. I'm going to break down Rocky. I'm going to answer a couple questions that came because there were some really, there's three questions that really um was unique. And I guess since it's my show, I can do what I want. So I'm sure Josh Strickland won't kick me off the air for that. First question that came in. Can you advise me how to defend a drinking and driving case? 
I blew a 0.32. Oof. All right, man, so you're almost double the high back. Let's break it down like this. Step one, it's got to be county specific. So let's get you an alcohol assessment. I recommend Greg Hills. Let's get you an AA. Let's show pay stubs from your employer. It's a character building thing. And you really should be paying more than $3,500 for a high back. I know some lawyers charge excessive amounts of money, but $3,500 is your standard. Pay stubs, alcohol assessment, AA. Build the package. All right? Hope that helps. Second question was kind of cool. Uh, somebody that followed me and probably watched me and Adam Cartwright a while ago. I read you're a big old school wrestling fan. What do you think would have happened if David Von Erich did not overdose? Okay, Von Erich fans out there. Let's break this down. Because number one, I'm not sure David Von Erich overdosed. All right? There's a lot of controversy about how David Von Erich died. And when he died, I just think it almost destroyed the NWA. David Von Erich was perhaps one of the best performers in the ring. And I love old school wrestling. I like the new shit, but old school wrestling is pretty fucking cool. I listen to podcasts and all on it. And I will tell you, David Von Erich would have set the tone for things. The NWA caught two really bad breaks. David Von Erich's death and Magnum TA's car accident. I think if those two guys would have had the... And I'm, I'm turning over my phone right now because my phone's blowing up. And I don't want to answer texts during the live. So if you text me, I will text you back. David Von Erich and Magnum TA would have set the tone for things. And, you know, the Von Erich, if you ever watched The Curse of the Von Erichs or The Dark Side of the Ring, a lot of tragedy with the Von Erichs. David's death, which I believe was accidental, Carrie's death, Chris's death, Mike's death, which were all suicides. It was such a talented family. And if Fritz von Erich would have went national, I think things would have changed a lot. They were a talented family, man. Talented group. I do think David Steph sadly set the tone for so much tragedy, but I think he was an amazing talent. I don't want to believe he overdosed. I believe it was a stomach issue with the sushi. I won't bore you with too many details, but if you look it up, I just think David Von Erich would have set the world on fire. He would have been the NWA heavyweight champ at a very young age. And I think it would have really changed the face of wrestling history. That's my feeling on it. Question three, and then we'll get into the lunch table stuff. What music recommendations do you have right now? I really enjoy your music theories. Well, thanks for that. Check out um, A Day in the Life 2001. It's on YouTube. A Day in the Life was Hawthorne Heights' first album. Really good. Um, you can't really find it anywhere, but it is on YouTube. There's some emails coming in, I see. Yeah, but check out A Day in the Life. It was really Hawthorne Heights' first EP, if you would. Put in A Day in the Life and then put in Hawthorne Heights and it will come up. You'll appreciate that. I um, was writing memos today and stuff like that and I was blasting it. Really good stuff. So, yeah, and my taste of music's different than other people's, but I will post that for you guys later. Okay, lunch tables. Let's break it down. Lunch tables in school, like, these were the clicks, man. You know, you ended up, your social status was dictated by where you sat in lunch. So I'm going to break down three scenarios. St. James. AC High, and then Stockton, and see how that evolved over time. At St. James, we used to do this thing where at lunch we would jump to different seats, and the cool kids always sat to like the left part of the room, and the geeks where I was at sat in the back. And you used to have like Linda McDavid or Kristen Connell, two of the teachers, they'd be watching, almost orchestrating who sat where. And it was almost like if you sat in a certain part of the area, you were going to make it to the next level. Um, so it was embedded in you from a young age. Here's this whole learned behavior bullshit about where you sit and who you eat with will dictate your success right in life. By the way, it was all bullshit. The ones that were sitting in the cool spots really haven't done shit. 
with their life. And a couple of the geeks like me and Q were really kicking ass. So keep that in mind. High school things changed. AC high. Lunch at AC high, man. Holy sh**. Like geography. <laughs> geography and social economics played such a role. So let me break this down. My freshman year, right? I was getting up. I was getting my ass kicked. You know, being a small white kid that jit me all the time. And lunchtime was a brutal experience for me. So I used to go hide in the old gymnasium. And there was like this desk there and I used to eat. And there was this janitor, Cardi. Some of you guys know Cardi. Fat ass. He sold me down there one day and he goes, you can't eat here. He goes, tomorrow you have to leave. Alright, so at least I had one more day of safety. Then he says, you know what, you leave now. I said, you said I could stay tomorrow. He goes, I changed my fucking mind. And I went up to the cafeteria. On my way up, I got up. You found your way. But here's how the lunch tables at AC High were set. You had the brigantine kids. And guys, I'm going to stereotype some stuff here, okay? Because there was exceptions to every rule. But here's the brigantine kids. The brigantine kids were white kids that really wanted to be black. They used to wear Oakland Raiders uh, jackets and talk like gangster-like. It was a joke. They were only tough in brigantine when they came to Atlantic City. They, they didn't really have that swagger. They used to hang in their own little clique. Smoked pot at a very young age, drank beer. In essence, as a general rule, the brigantine kids were white trash. Then we had the Atlantic City kids. That's where I was at. Now, the Atlantic City kids were mostly black and Hispanic. It was a tough place to grow up. Really well, especially being a small white kid. The athletes of Atlantic City that grew up in Atlantic City hung in one area. The academics in another area. The thugs in the third area. Very Atlantic City dominated, but the school almost segregated itself, and the lunch lines and the lunch tables really dictated that. You could really just feel it. Then we had the Vetner and the Margate kids. God, what a group of ass. So the Margate kids had money, and this was like a social status. They were the ones wearing the best clothes, so on and so forth. The Ventner kids were a step below, but it was always known that Ventner and Margate were kind of unified. In essence, these were the white kids. They used to sit in their own area at the cafeteria. And in essence, if you sat in the Ventner or Margate area, there was a level of protection. You sat next to the area, there was a level of danger. In the Brigantine area, it was just a level of dysfunction. That's really how AC broke things down. Where you sat in the cafeteria was a complete social status. Complete fucking joke. I mean, let's be real about that. Um, I will tell you, there was always exceptions to the rule, right? The academic from Brigantine may be accepted to sit with the Margate kids at lunch. You know, there was always those outliers, if you would. But, I mean, being real about shit, Man. Where you sat at lunch at AC High dictated who you're going to get laid with, who you're going to socialize with, your future. up, right? But that's where it was. I think about senior, junior year, I was just this little bullshit. You caught on, like, the ones that were mentally tough caught on this was all bullshit. But those lunch tables, man, they were brutal. Sat at the wrong lunch table, you were either emotionally abused or physically abused. It was kind of funny how it all went down. You got to the point where you kind of learned how to fight. You learned how to laugh off certain things. And with mock trial, that changed everything. Because it was weird. Mock trial was mostly Margate kids. When we had lunch together, I would never sit like the mock trial table. I would go sit with some other friends. I just never really fit in there. AC High is kind of... When I compare AC High and St. James is interesting, the physical brutality that I endured at AC High, and I know, listen, you will hear idiots from Ventnor and Margate say, oh, I went to AC High for four years, I never had any physical violence. Well, bro, take the jitney home to Ducktown. 
in the mid-90s. Let me know how that works out for you if you're white. Survival mechanisms, right? And you almost learned, like, the lunchroom was this little bit of survival mechanism for life. It's kind of fascinating. Wasn't a pleasant experience. After high school, I went to ACC. Now, this was different. ACC, Atlantic Community College, which is today Atlantic Cape Community College. Like the minor leagues, you know. I wasn't going to a four-year school right away. Um, I got into Seton Hall. I ended up going to community college because I was working full-time and playing travel baseball, and that's a story for another time. Some of you heard it. Some of you don't want to hear it. Some of you are dying to hear it. You'll get to it. First term at ACC was pretty interesting because I started bartending in the casinos, and you had a different click because some of the people you worked with in the casinos, they were actually at ACC with you. So you always hung out with the older crowd. First term was interesting. Friends from the casino were taking classes with you despite being older. That was your click. Second and third term, things got weird. People that got like kicked out of Rutgers or kicked out of Rowan or dropped out, they started flocking to ACC. The best analysis I could give you guys is that it was like the minor leagues. Like, you knew you were in the minor leagues if you went to ACC. But when people went to the four-year school and then came down to ACC, it was like getting sent down from the majors to the minors. And at this point, many of the people got kicked out or dropped out of, like, the Rutgers or the Rowlands. They would all hang together in the lunchroom. Now, these were people, like, trying to cling on to their high school superiority, if you would was kind of a joke at that point because you were experiencing real-world stuff. At least I was. Then we got to Stockton. Stockton was different. So junior and senior years, I'm at Stockton. At this point, life's kind of taking some real spins. I'm bartending 40 hours a week. And... If I had time to sit in the cafeteria, I would, but I would try to sit alone. Because now you had to understand something. While everybody was going to frat parties and stuff, I was dating like older cocktail waitresses. I learned a lot about life from that casino. And many of the things that people found interesting about college, I was kind of bored by it. I never drank, I never smoked, never used drugs. And all that was going on in the casino. But you learn from watching people in the casino. The girls you dated were all older. They taught you aspects of life that was not going to be found dating people my own age at the time. So when people would want to sit with me at Stockton, it was almost like a pain in the ass. It was fascinating to transition. Because at AC High and St. James, like you longed to be in that clique. You longed to be there. By the time I got to Stockton, I was trying to get the fuck away from the clicks. Now it's just called growing up, in my opinion. But it was fascinating watching the people at Stockton still try to hang on to their high school glory. Interesting. So, to me, lunch tables were always like this aspect of social acceptance. Those kids out there that... Trying to fit into that right lunch click. Guys, it's all bull. Just do you. You'll be fine. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Rocky. You know, I've always loved the movie Rocky. Rocky to me was fucking amazing. When I passed the New Jersey bar in 08, my uncle Sam sent me a letter saying you're the real life Rocky. You grew up in the Philadelphia Atlantic City area, Rocky is like mandatory reading, you know. Unfortunately, as you get older, and I still like watching Rocky, I mean I still watch it periodically. 
I love watching Rocky one when he fights Apollo and he basically, in my opinion, kicked Apollo's ass. He should have won that fight. Apollo was a champ. It set up Rocky too. We get it. But he went the distance. So, unfortunately, being a lawyer and the whole attention to detail thing, I was watching Rocky the other day. And I was just like, oh my god, did that really happen? After Rocky and Apollo fight a 15-round war, and Rocky won, you can't hear who the judges are going with. It was done on purpose to set up a Rocky 2. And Rocky's screaming, Adrian, Adrian! And Adrian's running to get to her man, right? And as she's running through the crowd at the spectrum... Her hat falls off. So here's Rocky, who the love of his life is coming to the ring to embrace him. And he may or may not have won the world championship. Adrian gets to the ring. And she holds Rocky and she's like, I love you. And he goes, where's your hat? Where's your hat? Then he says he loves her. So here's this guy being hugged by love of his life, coming off one of the greatest fights of all time, and he's confused where Adrian's hat is. And I hate to say it, but, I mean, here is where we start seeing Rocky's stupidity. <laughs> it's really coming out, right? Rocky too. Poor guy can't get a job. And he tries to, like, enter corporate America, and he can't do it. And Adrian doesn't want him fighting anymore. So she takes a job back at the pet store. Almost has a miscarriage because of it. Jesus. Finally, she encourages him to go fight Apollo again. He becomes world champion. So through all these dysfunction, there is always a happy part of it. Rocky three, Mickey dies. Now, Mickey was in no shape to take Rocky to the ring, and Mickey's about to have a heart attack. Rocky goes out and he fights Clubber Lang, Mr. T, gets his ass kicked. He comes back, and he sees that Mickey's dead. So now Apollo, his best friend, teaches him to fight differently. So he goes out to California. He beats Clubber Lang. Here's where... The stupidity of Rocky. And again, I love Rocky, man, but what the f***? Rocky 4. Apollo is fighting Draga, right? Oh, this pisses me off. First of all, why was Apollo dancing with f***ing James Brown, wasting all his energy, when he's got this championship fight, even though it was supposed to be an exhibition fight, right? Apollo is in no shape to fight Drago. But he does. Now, Apollo's getting killed, literally getting killed, and Rocky doesn't throw in the tail. Apollo's wife is screaming, throw in the tail. Apollo's manager, played by Tony Burton, who raised him like a son, is begging him to throw in the tail, and Rocky's just sitting there, like, doesn't know what to do. Dude, if you threw in the tail, Apollo lives. What the hell, Rock? Like, seriously? Your best friend, who gave you a chance to be the world champion of the world, and change your economic situation, he's getting killed, and you don't know what to do. Because Apollo says, well, if you stop this fight, I'll kill you. Well, Apollo got killed, Rock! Matt and I were talking about this the other day. The live audience is laughing right now. I get it! Like, throw in the towel! Oh my god! He throws the towel too late, Apollo gets killed. So, here's this guy, who's this amazing figure, right? He's asking this girl where her hat is. He's basically unemployed in Rocky 2. In some ways, he's responsible for his best friend dying in Rocky 4. Shit gets better in Rocky 5. Ugh, the Tommy Morrison fight. So, Tommy Gunn 
played by Tommy Morrison, who's dead now. Tommy Gunn becomes... He gets trained by Rocky, right? And Rocky lost all his money now. Because Paulie invested it, right? He gave Paulie power of attorney. Paulie the guy who... Nothing against Burt Young, but he's a tragic and stupid figure. And Rocky and Adrian decide, hey, let's give Paulie all our money. This is where Kara Weissman would have worked out. Kara, love, if you're watching this right now, I'll tell you. You give my wife a dollar, she'll turn into five. If Kara Weissman was in Rocky's life back then, she would have been investing it and flipping properties and stuff like that. But no, there was no Kara Weissman. He gave his money to f***ing Paulie. Paulie loses all the money. So they move out their mansion in the suburbs, and they're back in a row home in South Philly. And the only asset he's got is the ring left by Mickey. He finds Tommy Gunn. Now he's offered millions and millions of dollars to fight Tommy Gunn. He won't do it. He's got head injuries, right? So Rocky is not going to fight because Adrian doesn't want him to fight. Okay. Cool. I get it. He did what his wife wanted. But at the end of the movie, he ends up in a street fight with Tommy Gunn. Where he wins the street fight, but he got more damage done to him in that street fight for no money than if he would have made the millions going in the boxing ring in a protected situation. So here's Rocky. Where's your hat? Doesn't throw in the towel. Gives his money to Paulie. Doesn't take the millions for the fight with Tommy Gunn. And ends up getting almost killed in a street fight. What the hell? Man, I love Rocky. I really do. But Jesus, if you start breaking it down, how stupid is this guy? Anyway, I'm done with the rant. I'm Bill Amadeo. I'll talk to you guys later. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. If they want a war, McManus and Amadeo will give them a war. McManus and Amadeo PLLC, a Michigan criminal defense firm serving 16 counties. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.